you'll stand with me. We're going to read from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 for today's scripture reading. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Very familiar uh, account of Jesus when uh, Nicodemus came to him. And just think of the three, there's three times I think in this passage where Jesus says, truly, truly, or, uh, and just really trying to get the point across to Nicodemus about what's going on and who he is. And uh, I'm thankful that Jesus knows I need to hear it truly, truly. I need to, it needs to break through the hard headness and hard heart that I have and just thankful for, for Christ. All right, John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do all these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. <clears throat> and then our Scripture reading this morning, we're turning over to Psalm 107. And we're going to be reading verses 21 and 22 from Psalm 107. <clears throat> this is our sermon text. The same theme as we've been singing. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. 
and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. This is God's word. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Our sermon text is more of a springboard type text of just being thankful today. On this Sunday uh, before Thanksgiving, uh, I'm so thankful to, to be with you this morning. Um, I'm thankful. I thank God for my church family. Uh, I thank God uh, today, especially for the uh, three amigos back there in the sound booth that have uh, taken uh, Brother Jeremy's place for over, to oversee our live stream this morning. So um, I, I want to say to those that are watching us by live stream, uh, stay focused on the uh, spoken word today. And uh, if a, uh, uh, through the wonders of technology, a goofy face or a cat head comes up on my shoulders, uh, you just keep focused on the word of God, okay? Uh, but man, I am thankful for these guys, these young men that learn. Uh, we're training up the next generation to take over, to... Uh, take the baton, right? To take the baton when we're dead and gone. So uh, I'm thankful for you young guys back there. <clears throat> On this Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, I want us to do some corporate pondering of the subject we explored last Sunday when we were studying Second uh, Peter, uh, and that subject being the assurance of our salvation, the blessed assurance that Jesus is ours and that he is ours forever, for good, permanently, and that can never be lost. And let's ask God to make us even more thankful for his choosing of us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to, by your spirit, to continue to help us to be diligent, to make our calling and election sure. Thank you for the indescribable gift of your son, Jesus. He is our Lord, our rock, our fortress, our shelter, our comfort, our sanctification, our righteousness. He is our everything. And we rejoice and getting to know Him better and better every day. We ask that you transform us today to the next level of glory as we behold our precious Lord from your preached word. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together this morning will be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you were with us last week, you know that our topic was the assurance of our salvation. And we were moved to ponder that because of Peter's inspired instruction to us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, where he wrote, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Uh, just wanted to give you some other translations of that verse so you can see the emphasis that is put on the importance of this, the need to be um, diligent, the need to be zealous, the need to make every effort. Uh, the Lexham English Bible says, be zealous even more to make your calling and election sure. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. The New American Standard says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And the New English Translation says, make every effort, every effort to be sure of your calling and election. This is an important activity for the professing believer to be sure, to be confident, to have the stability of knowing that you are in the hands of God and nothing will pluck you from his gracious and loving hand. The uh, ESV study note on this verse says Christians Christians should be diligent to confirm their calling and election. God calls believers to faith through the gospel, but he has also chosen or elected them before the foundation of the world, as we read in chapter 1 of Ephesians. But God's grace and salvation should not be taken for granted. Growing in the Christ-like virtues mentioned in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, will give believers increasing confidence that God really did call them, and He really did elect them to salvation before the foundation of the world. Thus, their election becomes sure, as a sure foundation. In other words, we don't sit back after we pray a prayer or join a church or get baptized or walk an aisle or, or, or whatever we may be basing our salvation on, we don't sit back and twiddle our thumbs. There is effort involved in the Christian life. There's diligence involved. There's zeal involved. And it's spirit-wrought, spirit driven, spirit-empowered zeal and diligence and effort. So this morning, I want us to focus on that, that, uh, that action before time that took place in eternity past when God chose us to be His and thank God for it. And then I want us to move to the assurance that comes as we 
perform the due diligence that Peter urges us to take part in through his inspired instructions. So let's just take a moment together corporately to thank God for the truth of our election, if you're following along on your sermon sheet there. As we ponder this glorious truth, joyful gratitude should well up in our souls. Without the truth of election, without God's uh, action on our behalf before the foundation of the world, we would not be going through the process of making sure of it. Election had to come first. For apart from God's sovereign choice of us before the foundation of the world, without his seeking of us in real time, and without his ultimate rescue of us from our depraved condition by sending his son Jesus to seek and to save that which was lost, we would have all died in our sin. We would have gotten what we deserved. And listen very carefully, we would have gotten what we wanted. Let's let's camp there for a little bit. Let me try to explain what I'm trying to say there. And hopefully, this will uh, pour some gasoline on the fires of your thanksgiving on this Sunday before Thanksgiving. In the final analysis, when all has been said and done, and when this life is over, and when this age comes to an end, every single person that has ever lived winds up getting what they want. Have you ever thought about that? Well, if not, let's think about it now together. Let's corporately think about it. As we've taught our kids, rockers, there's two types of people. There are two types of people. There are believers and there are non-believers. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. There are saved people and there are, they, there are lost people. That's the only two types of people that exist. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral group. You're either saved or you're lost. Every single lost person will get what they want. That being, listen carefully, life without God. Life without God. Every single lost person will get that in a place called hell forever, for all eternity. Life without God was their desire in life, and it will be what they get at their death. Life without God is their desire, 
arising from the dead heart that they were born with. According to Romans 1.25, this group of people exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And that's what they wanted to do. That was their desire. They do not thank God. They do not want God. They do not honor God. They do not seek God. Romans 3 verses 10 and 11 makes it very clear. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one. No one. Universal negative. No one. Not a single individual seeks for God. Bottom line, unsaved people, unregenerate people, people without the life of the Holy Spirit do not want God. And when they die, they will get what they wanted all of their life, an existence without God. Let's talk about the second group. Every single saved person will get what they want, life with God forever. That is their desire arising from the new heart they were given at the moment of their regeneration. Their heart cry arising from that reborn heart, that heart of flesh, which has replaced by God's grace the heart of stone they were born with and that every lost person still has. Their heart cry echoes the psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, listen, that I desire besides you. And their heart echoes Psalm 1611, you made known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures, pleasures forevermore. So in the end, let's make sure we understand this. Every single person gets what they want. They get either life with God or life without God. No one is dragged kicking and screaming into the existence that they did not want. That's very important to remember. Like we talked about in our current Membership Matters class, which just ended today. What a great group of people. I look forward to seeing what, how God is going to lead them now, and you be praying for them. But like we talked about in our current, current class, in the end, No one is treated unjustly. No one is treated unfairly. The elect receive grace. They receive what they didn't deserve. The non-elect receive justice. They received 
what they deserved, and as we've already said, what they wanted. No one, not a single person, receives injustice because God is a righteous judge. He treats no one unjustly. Please understand that. The elect receive grace, what they didn't deserve. The non-elect receive justice, what they deserved, because the wages of sin is death. Eternal, permanent, spiritual separation from God. And there are times in the Bible when the Bible speaks of death, it's speaking more than, about more than just physical death. Because everybody dies, right? Even Christians die. Christians suffer physical death. So when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's talking about spiritual separation from God forever. Another way to say all this is, is this. No one will be able to say to God, I wanted to be with you in heaven, but you wouldn't let me in because you had my name on the wrong list. No, no one will be able to say that. Why? Because unsaved people do not want to be with God. Okay? Please understand that. Please make a mental note of this. When your when you're, um, friends, whether they be saved or lost, come to you, and, and give these caricatures of the doctrine of election and want to trash this biblical doctrine, which is all through the Bible in both the Old and New Testament, remember these arguments. No one in their original state in which they were born wants to be with God. So no one can say, I wanted to be with you, but I'm in hell because you didn't put me on the right list. No. No, they did not want God. That's the teaching of the Scriptures. Now, note this. Back from our study in 2 Peter. The apostle, it's interesting, isn't it? The apostle Peter instructs us to confirm something. That is, election, that many, if not most, professing Christians do not even believe in. Now, that's kind of hilarious, isn't it? Peter instructs us to confirm something that a lot, especially American Christians, do not believe in. He tells us, confirm your calling and election. And then Peter, Peter doesn't launch into a defensive election. He just assumes that believers are going to believe that because the Bible teaches it. So my question is, what do non-reformed believers, professing believers who don't adhere to the doctrine of election, what do they do with this verse? What do they do with this verse? And others like it. Well, let me offer some suggestions. A a lot of them, and you've probably talked with them, maybe. um, I know I have. uh, 
when I was, as a youth pastor, just being introduced to the doctrines of grace and just getting into Reformed theology, I had people that I respected heavily and, 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 and greatly give me an explanation, something like this. They would give the, um, the God looked down the halls of history explanation. God looked down the halls of history because for some reason, they think they've got to get God off the hook. You know, ooh, election is, a, in their mind, an unfair doctrine, okay? And we don't want people thinking God is unfair, so we've got to get him off the hook. We've got to have an explanation for it. When in reality, <laughs> if God was fair, nobody would be in heaven, right? If God was fair, we'd all get, every single one of us, we'd get what we deserved. Death, the wages, the wages, the fair result of sin which we all are, we all commit sin, we are all sinners, the fair result of sin is death forever, including the second death. So let's, please, we, I, think we've, I think we've taught this enough, and I think we've trained everybody in this. That's a phrase you can eliminate from your vocabulary. You know, that's not fair. Well, you, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. Okay, but... These folks, they think they got to get God off the hook. They don't want him to be charged with injustice, you know, that he's just arbitrarily, you know, putting people on a list and not putting some people on a list. And so they give the look down from history explanation that God looked down from his throne into the future and saw all the people who would believe in him. And then when he saw that, because he does know the future, Okay, when he saw who would believe in him, then he put them on the election list. Well, no, no, according to scripture, that is not what happened. Listen to Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3. God looks down from heaven. There it is. <laughs> he, he, he didn't do that. He looked down from heaven. Okay, they got that right. He looked down from heaven. All right, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What did he see? They have all fallen away. All of them. All of them. Every, nobody chooses God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none, none, not a single one, none who does good. And then just to make sure we missed it, the Holy Spirit adds, not even one. So my explainers from my early days got it half right. Yeah, God looked down from heaven, but he didn't see anybody believing in him. He didn't see anybody doing anything good. Would you agree that believing in God would be a good thing to do? Yes, we would all agree with that. But God says no one does good, not a single one. 
So we're all in deep weeds. Nobody's going to believe unless God acts first. Are you thankful or what? Are you thankful for the doctrine of election? Because without it, you're not going to choose God. You're not going to believe in God. You're not going to do anything that glorifies him, which the Bible calls a true, truly good act. That's how the Bible defines good, an act that glorifies God and often serves others. Okay? That's a good act. We're not talking about philanthropic deeds by billionaires who don't give a rip about God. Biblically, those aren't good deeds. Okay? Helpful to humanity, maybe, but not good in the sense of glorifying God because that was not their motive. But I digress there. To, to, to add to this biblical argument, we have this, what I call, killer section of Scripture in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. This was one of the ones that, that helped nail it for me, that helped nail it down. And I think the late R.C. Sproul was preaching on this when the Lord opened my eyes to this beautiful, beautiful doctrine. In Romans 9, beginning at verse 10, we read this. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and, listen, had done nothing either good or bad. They hadn't done anything. In order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? And then watch what Paul does. He anticipates the charge of unfairness. He anticipates it. He knows what his Arminian friend is thinking. He knows what his non-reformed neighbor is thinking. He knows exactly what they're thinking because his next words are this. Is there injustice on God's part? The Holy Spirit knows what people are going to say about the doctrine of election. Not fair. Not fair. And Paul addresses it. Is this not fair? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he sums it up with this line. So then... 
it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Beloved, our salvation is totally, absolutely, completely, 100% dependent upon God's mercy. Are you thankful? Are you thankful or what? It depends not on human will or exertion, but guess what? The exertion comes after salvation. Isn't that what Peter's saying? Be diligent. Make every effort. In other words, exert. <laughs> exert something. Exert effort to make your calling and election sure. How, Peter? By adding these qualities to the gift of faith. Virtue, self-control, brotherly love, all those. Same way with the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit indwells us. Well, how do we know? Well, its fruit will come out of our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Bottom line, bottom line. Let's just bottom line. Election is clearly laid out in Scripture. And our confession succinctly sums up the Bible's teaching in chapter 3 of the 1689 Confession, paragraph 5. Let me read it to you. Those people who are predestined to life were chosen by God before the foundation of the world according to His eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will. He chose them in Christ for eternal glory, purely as a result of his free grace and love. Got that? Purely as a result of his free grace and love. What did Paul just say? It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause moving him to do so. In other words, God did not look down the halls of history, see us believing, and that moved him to put us on the list. No, he put us on the list because of his grace and because of his mercy and because of his foreknowledge of us. And then I love paragraph 7 of our confession in that same chapter. The chapter is entitled God's Decree, and paragraph 7 gives us this wonderful warning that I probably should have read earlier in my life, and I wish I had of, um, but here's what it says. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care so that those heeding the will of God revealed in His Word and obeying Him may be assured of their eternal election by the certainty of their effectual calling. In this way, this doctrine will give reasons for praise, reverence, and admiration of God, as well as humility, diligence, and rich comfort to all who sincerely obey the gospel. In other words, let me try to, I think what that's saying is, God didn't give us the doctrine of election so we could beat people over the head with it. God gave us the doctrine of election so that we would have praise and reverence and admiration for God and deep, deep thanksgiving 
and, and deep humility that God chose the weak of the world rather than the strong. I love what Spurgeon said about the doc- this doctrine. Whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen. And there is no getting rid of it. To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Revelation. And those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. The Lord has chosen you, dear believer. And that's the only reason you're a believer. Spurgeon also said this, I believe in divine election because somebody must have the supreme will in this matter and man's will must not occupy the throne but the will of God. In other words, man does not get the final say, the deciding vote, so to speak, in his salvation. The, 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 the famous line uh, of someone trying to put another spin on election is, uh, oh yeah, I, I believe in election. God voted for me and Satan voted against me, and now I get to make the deciding vote in this election. That's a gross misrepresentation of the doctrine of election, as we all know. So, this Sunday before Thanksgiving 2021, I want to urge you, when you're making your gratitude list this week, to put the doctrine of election on it. Be thankful that God has chosen you. And then ask him to help you do what Peter has encouraged us to do. Be sure. Be sure. And then that would lead, that will lead to a next level of thanksgiving that we're now on and on our on our outline. Thanking God for the assurance of our salvation. As we are diligent to make our calling and election sure, what will flow from that will be this assurance, this wonderful assurance that we are God's. The Roman Catholic Church, as we saw said last week, says we, we can't really know. And, and, and to think we can know is the sin of presumption. But this is in direct conflict to the teaching of Scripture. And obviously, another of the many ways in which we as a Reformed Fellowship disagree with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as Alistair Begg points out, he says there surely is an arrogance that is born of self. That danger exists, an arrogance that is born of self. And we don't want that. That's not what we want. We in no way want to be depending 
on ourselves for our salvation. We can't have that. It's not even biblical. It's sinful. And if you drill down into that way of thinking, often you will find that it it is often connected with an assurance that is based on a past act. I said a prayer when I was a kid. I walked an aisle at, at a camp or revival years ago. I raised my hand. When everybody's head was bowed and nobody was looking, or I repeated a prayer, etc. In other words, I did this in the past, and God has to honor it forever. Where does Scripture say that? In fact, Scripture doesn't say that. As we said last week, when it comes to the assurance of our salvation, Scripture never points to a past event in our life, in our life. I guess you could get technical and say, well, yeah, it does. It points to the cross. Well, of course, of course, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a past event in a human being's life, okay? Because there is a very real sense that at the cross, when Jesus died and paid the price, we were saved, okay? But that's not what we're talking about here. Scripture never points to a past event like I said this prayer when I was 10 years old or I, I uh, raised my hand when I was at a revival when I was 17 and, and now I'm 50. My life hasn't changed a bit. But I did that. I did that. And God's got to honor that. No, that's not how it works. When Scripture points to the assurance of a person's salvation, it always deals in present tense activity type of actions, okay? And that's the second part of the beg quote. There's an arrogance born of self, but there is also a confidence that is born of Scripture, a confidence that is born of Scripture, and that's what we desire for everyone here. That's our desire, a Scripture-based confidence in what God has done to save you and to keep you, with the result being an abundantly thankful heart and a life that glorifies Him. Now, we hammered that last Sunday, looking at what God has done in salvation. We looked at a lot of scriptures. Uh, We looked at it from the standpoint of each member of the Trinity. So if you were not here, for, we're not going to do that again. So if you were not here last week, I encourage you to go to the website or to our YouTube channel, and listen to or watch that message. Our emphasis today, since it's the beginning of Thanksgiving week, is on being thankful that we truly can be sure that we are saved. And being thankful for the blessings that come with that assurance. So let's ponder together some of those blessings with another one of our inexhaustive lists. Remember, no list is exhaustive. I'm sure you can add to this. You can probably add a lot of things to this. I'm going to give you five real quick this morning, okay? We thank God for the assurance of our salvation, number one, because it gives us great joy. It gives us great joy. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, we read this. John says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, John, what, what were these things? 
We're writing these things for a purpose. And the purpose is to enhance the believer's joy, to make our joy complete, full, abundant, overflowing, okay? So what were some of the things that John was writing? Well, let me give you a sampling. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we've come to know him. In other words, by this we are sure, we have assurance that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 5, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. In other words, one of the ways we make our calling and election sure is by striving to live like Jesus as far as humanly possible. We know there are a lot of things that Jesus did we can't do. We're not going to turn water to wine. We're not going to walk on water, okay? We're not going to raise people from the dead. But from the standpoint of Jesus' humanity, we want to imitate that. Paul said, imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, another assurance verse. A holy life, imitating Jesus, producing righteous acts, is a, an evidence of our salvation. Again, it's not a past action. Not something we did at the, in the past. It's how are we living now? 1 John 3, 14, we know, again, an assurance verse, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That's just another phrase for salvation, right? From death to life. We know we're saved. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Love for your church family is a proof. That you've been chosen by God. So John's first letter was written. I, I might could say primarily. I don't want to be dogmatic on that. But a big reason for John's first letter was to give the believers, his readers, an assurance of their salvation. We write these things. And then I gave you a sample of some of the things he was writing to make your joy complete. In other words, assurance of salvation results in great joy. And we're thankful for that. Secondly, we thank God for the assurance of our salvation because it gives us strong encouragement. Strong encouragement. Hebrews 6, starting at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that, that by two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things, his, the character of his purpose and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. To hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure 
sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Man, a lot in in that text right there. I won't take the time to unpack everything there. But bottom line, being assured of our salvation, which God has promised by the character of his purpose and with an oath, gives us great encouragement. We're encouraged to persevere. We're encouraged to press on. We are encouraged to be steadfast. We encourage to not lose heart. We encourage to keep keep living for God in the midst of trials and hardship and in the midst of the sin-cursed world in which we live. Knowing we are God's forever, no matter what, is a major source of encouragement for every believer. And we are thankful for that encouragement because we constantly need it. Would, would you agree that we're living in a day where Christians just need to be encouraged? Press on, remain steadfast, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep plodding along in the power of the Spirit, stay together, be God's people. The basics, just, ba- just keep on keeping on with the basics of the faith. And when we know without a doubt that we belong to God, we can do that. We're encouraged to do that. That no matter what happens in this life, when the smoke clears, we're going to be with Jesus and with each other forever. Man, I'm so thankful for that. I am so thankful for that. Number three, we thank God for the assurance of our salvation because it gives us persevering patience. Persevering patience. These are all linked, aren't they? Yeah. Romans 8, 22 to 25. For we know, no, again, note note the assurance. We know, we know. These are things we know. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until until now. And those groanings are getting louder, aren't they? Those groanings are getting louder as we look at the world around us and the the unbelievable things that we thought we'd never have to deal with. It's because the whole creation is groaning for Jesus to make it right, to come back and make it right. And that day's coming. You keep pressing on, knowing that you belong to God, and you're never going to lose that. let Let me finish the verse. Knowing that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, the adop- for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Like, I'm not going to say, man, I hope I see Justin today. Well, I'm seeing Justin. That's not hope. It's a reality, okay? 
The physical presence of Jesus is not yet a reality. That's a hope. That's a hope. It's a certain hope. It's coming. But we don't hope for what we see. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Patience. Patience. Yeah, the world looks like it's, it is just pathetic. It's just going, going to hell in a handbasket. But hey, we're patient. We're patient. God told us the last days would be like this. Oh, but you say we're in the last days? Well, yeah, we are in the last days because that's what the Bible says. You know what the last days are, right? The time from the incarnation to Jesus' second coming. We are in the last days. That's the period of time that the Bible calls the last days. Knowing that when it's all over, we're going to be with God and his people gives us great motivation to live patiently. We can be patient. We can be patient with our our leaders, our human leaders, knowing that Our ultimate leader is coming back. We can be patient. We can disagree, but we can be patient. Knowing that God's purpose will not be thwarted, will not be blunted in any way, gives us great reason for patience. Isaiah 25, listen to this, verses 8 and 9. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. He has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Ultimately save us. Future tense of our salvation. You know, salvation, three tenses. Past tense, we have been saved from the, from the uh, guilt and penalty of our sin. That's justification. We are being saved from the power of sin as God sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus. One day, we will be saved from the very presence of sin when we see him we shall be as he is this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord we have waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation in other words let us be thankful Number four, we thank God for the assurance of our salvation because it purifies our heart. It purifies our heart. Listen, I already mentioned 1 John 3, 2. Listen to it again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, we know that we are assured, we're confident, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And listen to this. I've never, this verse has always astounded me. And I wish I was a better theologian and preacher to explain it to you. 
But I just want to encourage you to receive it. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That blows me away. That is amazing to me. In other words, the assurance that we will see Jesus is part of our sanctification process. How does that work? I don't know. It just says it. God gives us assurance, okay? He gives us the surety of our salvation, and then he uses that to make us more and more like Jesus. Isn't that what it says? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. So, beloved, just to be certain, just to be sure, just to have your hope fixed on the biblical truth that you're going to lay eyes on Jesus one day is part of your sanctification process. That purifies you as Jesus is pure. <laughs> How does that work? I, I, I don't know. I, I, just, I just want you to be certain. That's why Peter said, make sure, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. And one of the reasons is it purifies you. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love God's Word? Finally, number five. We thank God for the assurance of our salvation because it makes us even more thankful. So we're thankful for assurance because it makes us more thankful. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established, key word, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding, abounding in thanksgiving. The word established means to be settled securely. That's an assurance word, isn't it? Sounds like an assurance word to me. To be settled securely. To be secure, to be confident, to be stable, to be not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. To be solid, established. And this assurance, this, this establishing leads to the believer abounding in thanksgiving. Not just being thankful, but being abundantly thankful. This results with our prayers being Consistently permeated with thanksgiving, as it says in Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I don't know about you. I don't know how it works for everybody. I know everybody's different probably. As I age, as I get older, I find more and more my prayers are, 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 are moving away from give me this to, to I thank you for this. That's just me maybe. I don't know. But I think that's what Colossians 4.2 is kind of hinting at. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving permeates every prayer that we lift up to our Father. And then our actions, all of our actions are done for the glory of Jesus. And are, and are considered sacrifices of what? 
thanksgiving to God the Father, like Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever, 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 whatever. That means whatever in the Greek, whatever. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Everything, everything. Yes, everything in the Greek, that's everything. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Man, I pray that we'll be one of the most thankful churches to ever exist on this planet. Because that's the heart of Christianity, being thankful. And where does it begin? In eternity past with our election. God choosing us to be his. God setting his foreknowing love on us before we were even born. So dear Christian, speaking to Christians now, dear Christian, be be thankful. Please know this and be thankful. God's great and precious salvation is very purposeful and very intentional and very definite towards you. Don't blow me off. Hang with me now. We're almost done. He, God, chose you. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer right now, I don't know whether he's chosen you or not. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. I hope he has. Because I I pray for every person's salvation that's connected to our church almost daily. But believer, he chose you from eternity past. He sent his son as redeemer to purchase you for himself. He sent his Holy Spirit to you to apply that redemption to your dead heart. What am I getting at here? Here's what I'm trying to get at. When Jesus died, he wasn't dying for an unnamed and unknown to himself mass of humanity. When Jesus died, he wasn't dying for a group of people, the members of which he did not know. When Jesus died, he didn't die with no certainty as to whom he was dying for. Dear believer, he died for you. He knew your name. He says to every believer here today, exactly what he said to Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 5 of the prophet's book, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. According to Isaiah 49, verse 16, he has engraved you on the palms of his hands. He knew your sin nature. He knew your sinful acts. Every single one of them, every single sinful thought. And he still died for You, you as an individual, when he died, the names of each and every member of his church were on his heart and mind. He he knew those. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. He knew those for whom he was dying. 
Dearly beloved, listen, the finished aspect of Christ's redemption and the resulting assurance that comes with it should move us to deep, heartfelt gratitude. Have you grasped the significance of this? Have you grasped the wonder of this? Have you grasped the the radiant beauty of all of this? All the slimy wretchedness of my life has been dumped on Jesus Christ, and he has really and actually satisfied God's justice toward me in an actual, completed work of redemption on the cross. And 1 Peter 1, 8, 9 describes beautifully what should be our response. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the sure, certain outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Beloved, we must understand, we have to understand, we need to understand That when Jesus died on the cross, he was not thinking, I sure hope Butch will accept this. In Isaiah 53, 11, it doesn't say, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and hope people will accept it. No, no. It says he will see and be satisfied. Do you think he would be satisfied if he could lose you? He was satisfied at his completed work on our behalf. When he cried from the cross, it is finished. It was as, it was as if he was crying. Butch Rumble, paid for. Justin Matthews paid for. Jerry Daly, paid for. Gary Hackney, paid for. Donna Lingerfeld, paid for. Melanie Lingerfeld, paid for. Amy Rumble, paid for. For every believer in here, it's finished. Jesus paid it all. It's a done deal. You're good. You're in forever. What's the proof of that? Your ever-increasing, God-glorifying life. Not some past action. No. Today. Day by day. Pressing on. Not earning your salvation, but proving it. Oh, dear family, do we see that? That's crucial. That's crucial if we're going to be the church God's called us to be. We must understand this doctrine and this teaching from the Holy Scriptures. Are we thankful or what? I thank God that I'm saved. I thank God that I'm saved and that I know I'm saved. I thank God that I'm saved. I know I'm saved, and I know that I'm never going to lose 
That's salvation. My soul wells up in hallelujahs. And I thank God for you and that he has allowed us to grow in grace together. Happy Thanksgiving, church family. Let's pray together. God, you are so good. You are so good. Make us a thankful people. May gratitude just drown out all the clamoring, all the, all the whininess that often clamors for our attention. May thanksgiving just smother it, put it to death, kill it from our very existence. God, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May our lives reflect his goodness, his glory, his compassion, his love for others, his servant heart. His considering others more significant than ourselves. Transform us, Father, into an ever-increasing likeness of the one who died and said, it is finished. Bless your name. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.